read a study years, years back that really stuck with me, and it was a study of depression uh, in dogs. Uh, this is a study I would think of often when I was litigating at the Refugee Board. Because what the researchers in this study did, I assume because they didn't like dogs very much, is they had these groups of dogs and they divided them into two groups. And one group was given electric shocks at small, you know, uncomfortable electric shocks at uh, predictable but unavoidable instances. So whenever they would go to their water bowl, for example, whenever they would lie down. The other group was given these little electric shocks at completely random moments when they couldn't predict. And what the researchers discovered was that they could give many, many, many more shocks to the first group of dogs before these dogs started to show any signs of distress. Uh, and I would think of this as a litigator at the refugee board because we're constantly getting these little shocks out of nowhere. Um, the sort of, but so, ow, hey, what, you know, those kinds of moments happen all the time. Uh, and s sometimes I think, you know, we can see them coming. So back in my day, if I walked into a hearing and I was appearing in front of the member with a 0% acceptance rate, I had a pretty good sense of where that was going to go. Uh, and Sean Rehag, who's here today, Professor Rehag, uh, his work back in 2006, 2007, when he started publishing the members' grant rates, showing that we had some members who'd make 127 negatives in a row, and some who would accept every case that they heard. You know, that went some way to help sort of make sense of what would happen to us and our clients in our hearings. But at the same time, um, it didn't explain everything, because we would also have these situations where you'd be appearing in front of a very negative member who would grant your client's case, uh, or a very positive member who'd go negative. And sometimes I think what was hardest to, to grapple with were those situations where exactly the same factor would strike a member one day as problematic and the next day not. So we'd have one claimant where the fact that they waited two weeks before making their claim meant that they clearly weren't afraid and it must be a lie. Uh, you know, and then the next day the same member, some other claimant, had waited six months before making a claim and it just wasn't an issue. Um, and, you know, as a, as a rational person in a situation like that, you're, you're trying to make sense of it, so you're looking for rational explanations. Like, it must have been my socks. Right? Like, my good luck socks must have been what got me that positive decision today. So I don't care if they're coming wet out of the washing machine, I'm going to wear them every hearing I know <laughs> And we'd see the same thing at the federal court. Again, Professor Rehag has done some you know, quantifying of what all of us in practice, I think, intuited, which is that there's a very large disparity in the federal court judges' grant rates. Uh, in fact, there's one federal court judge, Justice Campbell, Lord Levin, who is so far off the spectrum in the claimant-friendly side of things that actually Sean has to leave him off the graphs anytime he publishes them, or the print would be too small to read. Um, and I mean, another example of magical thinking, true story, when I was, I would argue a, a lot of stay motions for a while, which is these last minute sort of frantic attempts to stop deportations. Uh, and you don't know which judge you're going to get. And of course, we're always frantically hoping for Justice Campbell. I have my grandmother's Cameron family clan pin that I would keep in my hand on the way to the federal court. <laughs> you know, God of my fathers, please give me a Highland Scotsman, please, you know, give me, give me Justice Campbell. Um, so, you know, this book was essentially an attempt to look beyond some of the magical thinking that kind of got us through our days uh, to, to kind of try to look seriously at what's going awry here in, in, these, in these situations. 
Um, and there's a fair amount of literature already that looks at decision makers themselves, so individual and collective institutional biases around this kind of decision making. But I came at this differently. I was looking at it, uh, I was looking at the law itself, because it seemed to me that there was something potentially going wrong in the law itself. Um, and it also seemed to me that all of the law that I read in law school and all of the law of the refugee law that I, that I was reading was about the substantive doctrine of refugee protection. So on a given set of facts, should someone deserve refugee protection or shouldn't they? But almost all of what I spent my time on as a lawyer were the fact finding, right? It was the previous <coughs> step. It was should the board member believe this person's account or shouldn't they? Uh, and I had the sense that the law that was supposed to govern that process was, was a bit of a mess. And uh, just as this book was actually about to go to press, um, I gave a talk about it to uh, some colleagues in political science. And I'm glad I did because I, I sort of rushed home and made some last minute changes to the introduction in order to reflect some of what came out of that conversation. Uh, because I really felt throughout my conversation with my political science colleagues that we were talking past one another. As political scientists, they're very interested in the institutional pressures on board members, uh, on the factors that might be driving members to decide in one direction or another. And there's been some great empirical work, some great ethnographic work in political science. Shule Tompkinson at Laval, for example, has done some phenomenal work um, looking at how members make their decisions and what kinds of factors influence decision making. But the people I was speaking with were quite skeptical about the notion that law could actually influence decision making, uh, as, as in fact am I. Uh, they, were, they were skeptical of the notion that law was, was what was driving members, that members would decide the way the law told them to, in other words. Um, and the challenge to, to me in that conversation was, well, if that's the case, then how can you really purport to say anything about members' decision making simply by looking at what the law does? I mean, if you're only looking at how the law works, you know, what, what, what does law matter? And, you know, I'll be honest, I hadn't really asked myself, what does law matter <laughs> since law school? Um, but it was, it, was, it was an eye-opener. And so I ended up including a paragraph in the introduction of the book to say essentially the following, which was, it's true that I am suggesting that one explanation for our members' inconsistent grant rates and consistent decision-making uh, is how the law works, how refugee law works. Uh, and that I'm making this claim about how their decision making works without having done any empirical analysis of the board member's decision making. Because this claim draws on an analysis instead of the legal environment in which that decision making is taking place. And it rests on this premise that inconsistency, that inconsistent decision making is inevitable when the law itself is incoherent. So I offered the following analogy, which was aimed primarily at my colleagues in political science, which is that if this book was looking to explain car crashes, it would be examining how decisions about the rules of the road are made and communicated to drivers, rather than trying to understand how people drive. So if people are driving too quickly or recklessly or while under the influence, that's surely worth exploring and please continue. But I think it's also worth looking at the fact that road signs are missing or unclear or are directing drivers into oncoming traffic. And in a nutshell, the book then makes two arguments. And the first is that the law of fact-finding in Canadian refugee status decision-making 
is missing or unclear or directing drivers into oncoming traffic. That there's just there's something that isn't working in refugee law in this area. And in this book, I look at about 16, 1700 decisions of the federal court. And what I think you see is that the federal court disagrees with itself on virtually every aspect of how fact-finding should work, how burdens of proof, standards of proof, presumptions should operate in refugee law. And one, one reason why, I suggest, is because refugee law internationally has never answered a key normative question that lies at the heart of the law of fact-finding, and that is, which mistake is worse? Of the two potential mistakes that hang in the balance in a refugee claim, which is worse? Is it worse to grant a claim that should have been denied or to deny a claim that should have been granted? When we think about a legal fact-finding process, a trial, let's say, or here, you know, we have this image of the, the blindfolded lady with the scales, right? And we might assume that decision makers are expected to at least try to be neutral as between the parties. But at the end of the day, when it comes to fact-finding, the law can never be neutral. Decision makers always have to resolve their doubts in favor of or at the expense of a given party. And the law's job is to make clear to decision makers which kind of mistake they should prefer. How should they resolve their uncertainty? If you think of Blackstone's maxim in the criminal law, it's probably one of the most famous legal phrases in all of the common law. Right? It is better that 10 guilty men should go free than one innocent one be convicted. That's the criminal law's error preference. And because the criminal law has that strong error preference, that's why it's fact-finding looks the way it does, the why, why it's burdens of proof and standards of proof and presumptions all operate the way that they do. So the Crown has the burden of proof right, to a very high standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt. Many presumptions favor an accused person, very few favor the Crown. Right? The whole system is tipped in favor of the accused on purpose at the level of the theory of fact-finding. Of course, you know, the reality of how a criminal trial works <laughs> may be different. But at the legal theoretical level, uh, juries are to resolve their doubt in favor of the accused. We don't have a Blackstone's maxim in refugee law. Uh, we don't have a clear stated preference for one error over the other. Instead, what we have in Canada is a federal court that is profoundly divided about which kind of mistake it should prefer. And so what it's done is create these two parallel bodies of law, one that allows members to resolve their doubts in the claimant's favor, and one that allows them to resolve their doubts at the claimant's expense. And what that means is for a member to make a positive decision or make a negative decision, or for that matter to make nothing but positive decisions or 127 negative decisions in a row, all that member needs is doubt, which in a refugee hearing is not hard to come by. So the book argues that we need to recognize a normative preference for resolving doubt in the claimant's favor, and I make some international law arguments for that. But it also argues, uh, and this is the second point, and the reason why there's a mushroom on the cover of the book, <laughs> that we also need to rethink fundamentally how fact-finding works in the refugee context. Because our board members, our Canadian adjudicators, have two fundamentally incompatible mandates. On the one hand, they're supposed to assess the risk that this claimant faces if they're sent back. That's their whole job under the convention. On the other hand, because this process is taking place within a tribunal hearing in North America, 
They're supposed to make legal findings of fact in an administrative proceeding that's steeped in the traditions of our Anglo-American common law. And the problem is that the logics of a risk, risk assessment and the logics of this kind of legal fact finding work very differently. The common law legal tradition is built on inductive inference. So in a hearing, an allegation will be accepted as fact if and only if it's found to be probably true. And as any law student will tell you, decision makers have to turn all of their uncertainties into fact before we then move on to answer the legal questions, right? before we apply the law to the facts. But risk assessment, on the other hand, is not a fact-finding process. There's never any point at which doubt becomes certainty when you're assessing risk. In a risk assessment, all doubt carries forward into the final weighing of potential outcomes. So I'll give you an example to illustrate the difference. Imagine that you pick a wild mushroom and you think it's probably a chanterelle. And you ask yourself, are chanterelles edible? And you're quite certain that they are. How risky would it be to eat this mushroom? If you approach this as a legal exercise, bon appétit. <laughs> you're quite certain, you know, it's probably a chanterelle, so it is one. And you're quite certain that chanterelles aren't dangerous. So there's very little risk there. If you approach this as a risk assessment, you're going to be like, well, hold on. <laughs> I think it's probably a chanterelle, but how probably? Like, probably or probably? You know, like, right? Your level of doubt or uncertainty makes a difference. You can't assess risk by inductive inference. Full stop, right? An inductive fact-finding model distorts risk assessment. So we need to look to a different model uh, of decision-making under these kinds of circumstances. One where I propose where, where members actually don't make any findings of fact at all. And so the model that I propose in the conclusion of the book is an abductive model. Uh, abduction is, is, you know, so induction, deduction, and abduction is, is a model of reasoning equated with inference to the best explanation. So essentially, Board members don't have to decide whether this happened or not. They have to decide, as between competing explanations, which am I uh, more, uh, which would make more sense to accept. So essentially, what you end up with is a model where board members are recognizing their doubt. Right? They're they are recognizing that <coughs> making findings of fact in a situation where we know we're going to get it wrong a lot is not necessary. And in fact, I think it's frankly offensive. I think it's, it makes a difference whether you, as a board member, deny someone using the language of fact or if you do it using the language of doubt. So, you know, I find, as a matter of fact, that you were not attacked is unnecessarily offensive. Um, why not simply say, I have serious doubts about whether you were attacked? I think you can get to the same place uh, in a more humane fashion. <laughs> Um, so in any case, that's that is my introduction, and thank you very much for being here, and thank you to Catherine and Graham for your comments. Thank you.